Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Back Half, the New Statesman's culture podcast. I'm Tom Gatti, culture editor of The New Statesman. I am Kate Mossman, the arts editor of The New Statesman. And if you don't know by now, we are called The Back Half because we work on the back half of the magazine, in the back half of the office. If there was a pantomime, we would most likely be the back half of the horse. Or we might even be behind the horse looking at the butt of the pantomime horse. And Sometimes it feels that way. That's a, that's a measure of the tone that will be set on this show because we're going to be discussing Daddy's Home 2, Mel Gibson's return to cinema. And we've got a special guest on to talk about that, who I'll introduce to you in a moment. After that, what are we going to be talking about, Kate? Talking about Utopia, the new album by Bjork. And we will also have the umpteenth uh, edition of our Noniversary, the uh, non-specific cultural event that happened a few years ago. So today on our podcast to discuss Daddy's Home 2, we have the New Statesman film critic, Ryan Gilby. Hello, Ryan. Hi, Tom. Hi, Kate. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for coming down to the slightly grubby bunker. We're going to talk about Daddy's Home 2 because Ryan had an interesting point to make about it in his review in, in this week's magazine. It's a Christmas comedy sequel. I don't know if anyone's seen Daddy's Home. I haven't. I haven't. Have you, Ryan? You know, I haven't. And I was shocked to find it took $250 million worldwide. (gasps) So this is why, I mean, it's only two years ago. So you see why it's been rushed out with unseemly haste. And this already has 20% on Rotten Tomatoes, does it, this new one? Yeah, let's see if that climbs any higher. We're not, (laughs) our score isn't going to be contributing to that, is it? In the States, I'm say. So Daddy's Home 1, which I haven't seen, is Mark Wahlberg and Will Ferrell as co-parents. Will Ferrell being the kind of very sweet soft dad and Wahlberg being the the tough guy and how they learn to love each other and daddy's home too in the time-honored tradition of Hollywood sequels simply doubles everything so we also have the grandparents in the mix and this is where Mel Gibson comes in as Wahlberg's bitter estranged tough guy father and what's the name of John Lithgow John Lithgow John Lithgow as Will Ferrell's very soppy jumper wearing dad the main tension in this one is between Wahlberg and Gibson, 
father and son. Gibson has arrived to, in Wahlberg's words, stir the turd and just make everybody feel bad about themselves. And Wahlberg is determined to have a perfect Christmas and jam that perfect Christmas up his father's butthole. That's right. So that's the kind of, of tone we're looking at. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's like with most uh, mainstream American films, there's a lot of therapy and of getting issues out here. And Wahlberg... Uh, says, you sent me to military school at the age of four and things like that. So there's a, And he's got a childhood trauma, which involves a performance uh, at a school concert of Do They Know It's Christmas, uh, where he uh, was distracted from singing the, the big line. And the whole question is, will he get to sing that line and achieve closure? <laughs> Do you know what? By the time they actually get to sing that line, I've actually forgotten about the childhood trauma. <laughs> and also, are, they, are the proceeds of this song going to Africa? This is what well, I know. <laughs> well, they're just going straight into Mel Gibson's reaction well, Christian Foundation. Exactly. It's weird how the uh, when when they do perform do they know it's christmas they expunge all the references to famine in africa so it's just a christmas song <laughs> so the reason why we're talking about this really is mel gibson so why is he been off our screens for so long and why is this significant well he's had a lot of um his behavior has resulted in a lot of kind of public scandals i think it was 2006 or 2007 where there was um he was pulled over drunk driving and then proceeded to uh, make a bad situation a million times worse by kind of ranting and raving at the arresting officers called the female officer sugar tits and then started asking if they were Jewish and making lots of anti-Semitic remarks. Um, and all this was recorded, obviously, by the police officers. Um, so there was that kind of immediate sort of fall from grace. And then um, a few years after that, him and his partner broke up with who he has, I think, one child. And there were domestic violence charges and he pleaded no contest, uh, I think, to battery charges. And then there were tapes released of conversations where, phone conversations where he phoned up his ex-partner and used threatening and racist language. So really the whole... So he's revealed himself to be a piece of work. Yeah, a real, a real sweetie. And um, I mean, and this is, you know, it's not, it's not that anybody thought he was a, a saint. It's not even that we need our, our film stars to be saints. I mean, back in the 90s, you know, you could find any Mel Gibson interview kind of littered with homophobic remarks. Right. I mean, just, yeah, just Google Mel Gibson and they all come up. But what's interesting about Daddy's Home too is it's the, even though he's been making films since this, I think he's got about five or six credits since all this started in 2006 or seven. Daddy's Home too is the first time that we're expected, we need, in fact, to find him likeable, right. entertaining. And this is a lighthearted film. So the question is whether this baggage is going to sink the film, which needs to be fluffy and fun and light because you know he's welcomed back into the Hollywood fold the end of last year beginning of this year when he directed Hacksaw Ridge a war film that got him a best director nomination Oscar nomination so you know he's officially been kind of welcomed back but the question is you know he's a director there so he's not obviously on camera and the question is will his face his very presence have this kind of toxic effect so you feel um, there's a difference actually between allowing him to be in a family movie at christmas versus absolutely directing a film absolutely directing a film and he's also he's also done a couple of action films and one of them was an expendables film uh, i think it was the the third one and he was also immediately post the first scandal he was in a film called the beaver with jodie foster who's an old friend of his and they they acted together in um, maverick and she's kind of publicly supported him through his alcoholism and things like that. And The Beaver was great. It was a really great first post-scandal film because he plays a really messed up guy in it who has a breakdown and starts communicating with the world through a hand puppet. Uh, he mm. even wears this hand puppet during sex. 
and and it, the puppet's mouth moves while he's panting during sex. So it's a really clever film and a really clever choice for him. But yeah, as I say, with Daddy's Home Too, it's the first time that he's not playing a necessarily messed up character. It's someone we, we need to find likable. And for me, he just stunk the film up. Yeah, is, is it about how much you can you yourself can detach the person on screen from the, from the backstory? Yeah. And that's kind of, in a sense, we know that Hollywood is full of these awful, dark evil characters but we we do make a disconnection when we watch them on screen like Mark Wahlberg as you, you say in your piece this week in New Statesman Wahlberg has already been rehabilitated in fact before his career really took off he'd been in prison for a sort of attempted murder which was racially motivated now when we look at Marky Mark and we look at Mark Wahlberg in you know, what was it, Ted or something? Mm, We're yeah. not thinking about that guy who it's did that. Diff- exactly. It's a, it's a different life. I mean, this was before he was even, this was when he was back when he was known as Donnie Wahlberg's kid brother, you know, the guy from New, kid, New Kids on the Block, before he was even an underwear model. So it doesn't really impinge on now. Plus, he's he served his time and he's been very public in his, um, you know, kind of repenting over what he's done, that kind of thing. So um, whereas with Mel Gibson, there's a feeling that, that hasn't really happened. All that stuff is still unresolved. It's A, it's so recent. And B, you know, it's just there's never been act- any actual real tangible apology. It's just been I was having a breakdown. Can't people forgive me? I was having a nervous breakdown. Mm. Yeah, that's fair enough. That's a good point. But in a role like this, in a film like this, you need levity and any baggage like that is going to sink it. And it really does, I think, especially as there's a lot of times, you know, as you, as you said, Tom, he plays uh, this kind of gruff macho type. And there's a lot of kind of namby-pamby behavior from Will Fer- Ferrell and John Lithgow, which is which is quite sweet. Um, you know, uh, Will Ferrell, when he's going to teach his his stepson the facts of life, suggests using gender neutral flashcards <laughs> and things like that, which is lovely. They're really nice gags. And how you should and get they... yourself in the friend zone. Yeah, son. the that's, friend that's zone. It. There's some really good stuff. About and the father zone. and son kissing each other on the lips. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and you know, right from the minute Mel Gibson sees that, he says to Mark Wahlberg, "What should we do? Take down our pants?" You know, so he's very immediately disparaging of all that. What I found difficult was the film keeps there. We keep getting reaction shots of Mel Gibson kind of sneering at this behavior. And I felt very much like we were expected to sympathize with him. Like, yeah, God, these guys, aren't they ridiculous? These new men. <laughs> and just having Mel Gibson as a kind of moral arbiter in a film just sits very uneasily for me. It reminds me a bit of, have you ever seen Last Man Standing with Tim Allen? Oh, oh no, I haven't seen that. I thought you meant the Bruce Willis one. No, no it's, it's like a, a long running American sitcom, right. hugely popular. And it's basically Tim Allen plays this kind of... Um, sort of super reactionary Republican prepper kind of guy who runs a an outdoor clothing store in Colorado. And it's sort of set up as though we're laughing at his homophobic views, his idea that any boys who have feelings are sissies. And, but we're not, we're kind of, those are the jokes of the film. So this TV show is hugely popular with Republicans in the right. United States. And it's not kind of looking under the surface of the views he's got. It's just making jokes out of them. And it kind of felt like this a bit in this it's movie. It's really having it? your cake and eating it, isn't it? Let's make the joke and laugh at the guy making the joke. I remember, you make me think of Jack Nicholson in As Good As It Gets, where he, he's the same, yeah, homophobic and sexist. It's like, well, how much are we criticising this guy? He's our main point of contact in the film. Um, not that I go to films to be told, you know, to have my views reconfirmed or anything. You know, that's not what you look for. But the film doesn't do anything clever with the idea of the Mel Gibson character. He's just there to undercut those kind of um, fluffy moments between uh, Farrell and Lithgow. And actually, we don't laugh at him at all, do we? We laugh at Lithgow that's falling right. over in the snow constantly and Will Ferrell for being a sissy, but we don't laugh at Mel Gibson. In fact, yeah, that's what I mean about the reaction shots. They're there to tell us to kind of mock these characters, kind of his his sneering. And that's really, that's what I found most problematic about the film. You know, when he's homophobic, the character, and he says about his grandson using the sissy rail during bowling. You know, you <laughs> expect that to then be undermined. But in fact, 
the boy doesn't use the sissy rail and then he prevails. He becomes a man by not using the sissy rail. And at no point is the phrase sissy rail ever questioned. <laughs> when we saw it on Monday, we were laughing at a lot of points though, weren't we? This is the weird thing about this film. We did actually kind of enjoy it. Some of those situations do give you the odd good line like i think um you learn by fearing the gutter just like in life you know that you know that's quite you know that's quite a good line and and he delivers it with you know a well, certain amount of and it panache. has a nice real life echo for yeah him, you know? yeah yeah um so i think there are moments that, like that that slightly redeem it ridicule makes you stronger is another one isn't it? yeah <laughs> it begs the question for now what kevin spacey and co well, to take Kevin Spacey specifically, how long is it going to take? I mean, I suppose we don't know what else is going to come out and how it's going to play out, but how long do you need to, once you've been dropped by your agent and cold-shouldered by the industry, what do you need to do to get back into the fold? And with Gibson, was it simply a matter of time or was it something else? Because there was no apology, as you said. There was, yeah. It was just, I mean, there was, you know, you'd be hard-pressed to even call it contrition. It was just kind of please excuse this behaviour, I was having a breakdown, rather than kind of addressing. With Spacey, I don't, I, you know, I really don't know. It's not like we're talking about Winona Ryder shoplifting or something. This is something that's, you know, as, as, as you say, we don't know what else is going to come out. And, um, I mean, I should say, obviously, this is not the most pressing question about the whole thing. You know, when will Kevin Spacey get work again? But, you know, it's just, it's just so hard to say. Assuming that, you know, we see a few more of these sort of allegations against him. I mean, who's going to want to... He's going to have to go for an enormous kind of amount of public redemption isn't he? I mean we've got the already got the controversy of him kind of trying to distract from the allegations by coming out which is you know kind of one of the most distasteful things about the whole thing I mean it's just hard to say you interviewed really him is. didn't you years I did ago. 20 years ago yeah, yeah I, was, I was looking it up it was 97 he just directed a film called Albino Alligator and it was a few months before LA Confidential came out which he saw as trying to move into a new direction of performance because before then he described how he described the roles before then to me like um, the usual suspects and seven these were people who were so kind of self-involved they really could have just been speaking to themselves in a room they didn't really need anybody else and with LA Confidential he was trying to yeah bring some warmth in really and it was a really funny yeah reading back on it it was a funny encounter he was kind of remonstrating with the coffee machine that was gurgling too loudly he was being snippy and sarcastic with his assistant and it was you know an entertaining kind of act and that's what it was an act there was a great line in it though something about the the way something about how he revealed that he likes to be sort of out of the spotlight yeah can you tell us about that yeah he'd said he'd um he'd quoted a line from paul bowles i can't remember the writer of sheltering sky i can't remember exactly what the line was but it was something about the writer needing to stay off the radar uh, stay under the radar and he likened that to what he did you know the the less people know about an actor's private life the more successfully they can work mm. you know that's kind of a truism really i guess yeah it was just particularly that use of he said i like to stay in the shadows um, and i talked to a friend about this and he said that's an analytical kind of psychoanalytical idea your shadow self mm. kind of the you know and he was he was literally playing his shadow self in films like usual suspects mm. and seven and a really great film called hostile hostages where him and judy davis are going through an ugly divorce he was acting all this out on screen um, and now I guess the question is, is that idea, what are you trying to tell us, boy? What is, you know, that do kind you, of lassie idea. Do you think also, though, that the climate now has changed significantly from 10 years ago with uh, with Gibson in that, however serious the spacey allegations are, to, you know, remove someone from a film? You know, you've, you're spending millions of dollars doing that. Presumably the, the studios and the agents now, this idea of kind of managing their own reputation and not having anything tarred at. I was slightly... In a way, it, it made this welcoming of Gibson back in slightly odd timing for me that um, mm. I'm kind of seeing a lot of anxiousness around having 
dodgy stars associated with your with your stuff so i'm kind of surprised that's why i'm surprised because i mean let's not pretend that you know i mean there's this ridley scott film that's coming out in january i can't remember the title exactly all the money <laughs> in the world or all the money can buy. It's the one, the one that about, he's been removed from he's been removed from yeah. and his, his scenes are being reshot uh, he's playing john paul getty i think and his scenes are being reshot with christopher Plummer yeah, instead who's about 108 yeah and who ridley scott is now saying was always going to be his first right, choice yeah. for the part but the studio didn't want him i mean let's not pretend that the scenes are being reshot you know out of sensitivity exactly and no it's a Sony don't want, exactly. Yeah. Sony don't want the film kind of toxified. Um, although this is now obviously going to be the first thing anyone writes about this film. So yeah, I mean, it does seem a weird time for this to happen. And I do think that Paramount, who the studio behind Daddy's Home Two, are taking an enormous risk. It just I mean, made me think about Christmas movies, though, because like there is, they are their own industry, aren't they? People must do them because of the cash. Because this yeah. was, this is never going to be critically acclaimed. The guy who directed this also did. Dumber and Dumber 2 or whatever right. it's called and Horrible Bosses 2 right. and various other 2s throughout the years writer of Mr Popper's Penguins the right. uh, renowned yeah. Jim Carrey that is vehicle. quite a CV <laughs> yeah. why do they get themselves involved with these films unless yeah. it's just for an amazing kind of pile of cash well as I say it? 250 million dollars worldwide that's not you know that's an amazing amount of money this is the critics just don't matter in a situation like this and the christmas film industry is huge and also there's something else that the film uh, with the older cast members something else that it reminded me of it has overlap with stuff like last vegas and old dogs you know these films where they get a bunch of old geezers together mm. and um yeah. kind of play off their banter and things like that and then things like bad mums and there's been another bad mums film which is to do with chris bad mums christmas i think maybe what's interesting about daddy's home too in terms of christmas movies is that so many christmas movies hinge on crisis christmas is a time of absolute despair you know even going back to it's a wonderful life 1946 which is you know the kind of jumping off point from that is the, is the main character about to commit suicide and then modern things like home alone and jingle mm. all the way and things like that they all kind of hinge on that moment where christmas can kind of collapse so you know maybe from that point of view mel gibson is a good person to have in this it's <laughs> yeah. like he's so volatile what's going to happen christmas could go down the pan a broken man trying to return <laughs> to his family and spoiler alert the way that crisis is actually averted in this movie is by everyone going to the cinema. Very weird. It's very meta. It's it a sort is, of bizarre something... giant piece of self-product <laughs> placement at the end of this film. For cinema generally, yeah. yeah. And, and and this this thing that, that could never happen, which is everybody, you know, the, the people who work at the cinema giving out all the snacks for free. Can you imagine? I can't think of anything more depressing than the idea of a Christmas party in the foyer exactly. of a multiplex. In the foyer of a multiplex. Can you, I, I think they'd double the price rather than giving it out for free, don't you? It'd be like surge pricing. <laughs> what was the last Christmas film you thought was genuinely brilliant? Oh, crikey, that's a hard one. Let me think. Well, I love Elf which right, is Will yeah. Ferrell really doing the same. It's his persona, isn't it, that he does here and he does in things like Step Brothers, the, the kind of huge overgrown baby. Um, <laughs> and Elf is so beautifully judged. I mean, that's a character who's he's just just perfectly beautifully naive, like, like Buzz Lightyear from Toy Story or something. You know, he's just such a great character and it works so well. And there are so many brilliant moments in it, you know, like him finding the gum, the coloured gum on the subway rail and thinking that it's free sweets and things like that. <laughs> and I just think everything about it is beautiful. I think Elf 2 for me, and, and um, I think it's, it's the difference between actually, as Ryan says, putting a lot of care and attention into a character rather than just chucking a load of actors in a room and, you know, and, and seeing what happens. I mean, I haven't seen the first time alone for a long time, but it's... That stays with you too. That's sort of the era of classic, classic, though, yeah. isn't it? They sort of stopped being. Maybe it's just our age, but I felt they stopped being sort of mm. really good. I, I really like Bad Santa still. Oh, I yeah, know that's yeah. the anti-Christmas yeah, movie, yeah. but watching Santa wee himself because he's drunk is just funny. <laughs> or I still think of that nice image of uh, of um, Dan Aykroyd in Trading Places, like he's got a 
he's just been to a buffet. He's a drunken Santa and he's been just been to a buffet and he's hidden like, is it a salmon or something in his beard? <laughs> and he pulls out this salmon covered in fluff and tries to eat it. Yeah, I like those kind of anti-Christmas things. I guess the holiday kind of killed the Christmas movie, didn't it? Or yeah. Maybe, well, it didn't kill it, but kind of marks the point at which it all started to go downhill, probably. Ryan, thank you so much for coming in. Daddy's Home 2 is out on the 24th, I yeah. believe. Yeah. Nice and early. So um, (laughs) get in there and... uh, Enjoy. Enjoy. (laughs) As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks. You're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. So Björk is just about to release her 10th studio album utopia out on november 24th and is that um, including the one she did when she was 12 it is including the one she did when she was 12 she recorded an album in 1977 age 12 and have you heard this no i you just only, told me about it now I've, I've only read about it and it's sort of icelandic covers of the beatles and stevie wonder an instrumental recorder track that she wrote herself in tribute to some Icelandic painter, which gives you a sense of yes. the direction she was heading. She's come so. full circle because this has about 60 flutes on it, doesn't it, this one? I think the flute was one of her first instruments and she said that she went away from it for a long time and has, and has come back to it. It has a flute ensemble? Do you, of do you women, think? women oh, only yeah. flutes. And she rehearsed them, I think, for 50 hours every Friday for 50 weeks. How would you describe the sound of this record it's, it's it's like the music of an elizabethan mask i suppose all Björk's music is but it's so multi-layered and um there are parts where it feels minimalist and are parts where it feels maximalist but you always have this kind of it's got a very very buoyant feel to it and often that thing that Björk does so well of putting beats and sort of orchestral melodies kind of at odds with each other and coming up with something that sounds completely homogenous and holistic and like it works it's kind of yeah bucolic pastoral strangeness Mm. and um 
she Miranda Sawyer interviewed her recently and and she's obviously a very playful interviewee and she was asked what is this utopia because obviously that's the album's title and she says oh it's a place where there's no men where it's women have taken their children where plants have mouths where you know you've got fishes with three eyes like you get in the Simpsons that kind of thing so there was this lovely idea of kind of being able to throw all these ridiculous ideas into the mix but she also told somebody else it was her tinder album which is great because, of course, her last record was the big breakup from her partner and the father of her, her daughter. So this is the one where she's kind of getting herself back together. So Volnakura, yeah, it was the, the breakup album with Matthew Barney. And the one thing that Björk always does is pause everything into the sound and imagery around a concept. So that one was all about wounds. You remember the album art? It's kind of all these kind of gaping wounds. And in Utopia, she's turned that idea into the gate, which opens up into something new. So... Uh, let's hear a, a section from uh, the gate. Care for you, care for you. I care for you, care for you. Care for you, care for you. I care. So the gate, I think, is is one of the keystones of the album. It's got this this lovely refrain: "I care for you, you care for me. My silhouette is open. It is a gate." It also brings in a lot of the elements of the record. So you've got these kind of background sort of David Attenborough noises, you know, like like Planet Earth is just playing in the background. Real tree frogs and stuff. Yeah, and and she uses um, bird song a lot throughout this record. Some of it recorded by herself recording the Arctic loons outside her little hut, wherever it is in Iceland. And some of it from, did you read this? She has this record from the 70s, a vinyl record of Venezuelan bird calls that she's always been obsessed with. And so some of the bird song on this album actually sounds a little bit sort of odd and scratchy. And it's because she's sampling from this strange old record of Venezuelan birds. Vintage birds. What really um, struck me listening to this as well as Volnikura was she's got such an incredible ability to capture the sort of physical realities of love and of the losing of love. And a lot of sort of songs about breakups are actually about, you know, how your life has been changed. The paraphernalia of your life is not there anymore. She writes about bodies. Yeah. And in Volnikura, obviously, there was this line going as through, as you say, I am one wound. Hmm. And now she's kind of, she's done the positive on that. And there's this beautiful track called Features Creatures. I think she's got some new bow. And she's like, when I hear someone with the same accent as yours asking directions with the same beard as yours, I literally think I'm five minutes away from love. Isn't it odd? And it's like she's got this ingenue kind of persona that, I mean, it's not the real person, hmm. but it's like she's kind of unfettered by all the, the business of marriage and mortgages and commitment and what an adult relationship actually means. And hmm. she's able to pull it right back to your hands, your beard, your breath, that kind of thing. And I just think it's extremely heartwarming. And that's like where a lot of the joy in, the, in this record is, this idea. I mean, she's not explicitly talking about having a new boyfriend. Mm. There's just a couple of tracks that make you think, oh, that's what it's like falling in love with somebody. Well, it captures that very adolescent thing. And Blissing Me, which I think is the second single off the record, 
talks about two music nerds obsessing and swapping mp3s and you know it, it, it enables you to think what courtship with Björk might actually, might actually <laughs> be like without any of the realities of, yeah. of having to go out with Björk which cannot be easy <laughs> Like her, her ex-partner is suing her to see more of his child, things like that. This is like seriously naughty stuff going on. Yeah. But in the songs, you just get this wonderful, the idea of like naked nymphs frolicking in feathers. <laughs> You're absolutely right about her sense of the body, because one of my favourite Beat records is Vespertine, which is the most intimate piece of music I think I've ever heard. And it's, and it is all about, I mean, that's the beginnings of her relationship with Matthew but I mean you can chase you can chart this relationship actually probably <laughs> over the last five five records but it's all about bodies and the intimacy of bodies and and she manages to recreate that with with the kind of sound world of each of each album as well that's all kind of tiny little hushed I read recently um I've never read anything about that record and I looked up recently and um what she did is she recorded like little things around her house so you know like dropping a little item on her table just hundreds of these and then put them all in in you know her software and massively amplified them and then created all the rhythms out of just all these tiny little <laughs> object Found events within 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 the Björk household she also talks about yeah another line i love in features creatures shuffling your features assembling a man warming my heart on this log fire of love <laughs> It's just beautiful. <laughs> and she, because she delivers it with such conviction, it kind of, it, it, it comes off. Some of her records are more Icelandic than others. And this is a very Icelandic record. So it returns you to Homogenic, for instance, has these amazing volcanic beats. And this also has that, has that quality. You know, it, it's got a very elemental percussion to it. And the imagery around it, I mean, I actually don't know if this is Icelandic or not. She has like not, a, a sort of strap-on in one of the pictures. Big Inuit strap-on. She's wearing an Inuit strap-on. The flutes, of course, the flutes play a big part, but she's also wearing these kind of strange um, mythical headgear. It may derive, in, at least in part, from some... Icelandic myth I'd, I'd be very disappointed if it didn't yeah she was saying recently that one of the big bugbears is that because she likes to dress up and do these dramatic sort of tableau it means that people have not realized that she produces her own records over the years so she's now starting to be pictured more next to her equipment and she's leading a whole campaign for other women musicians to be standing next to a mixing desk and stuff just because they happen to not be it in a, in a photograph it doesn't mean they're not working with that stuff you know yeah and she is you know she's one of the great producers arrangers in in contemporary music isn't she i wonder if she'll do some strange visual show with this like she did with volnikura where you got a kind of scary pixelated bjork singing the songs into your face when you put this sort of weird virtual reality <laughs> headset on it'd be quite nice because obviously it's a, a nicer landscape than that one it can have fairies and satyrs and fauns and things like that in it maybe she's working on it i just want to go back there now november 24th utopia by bjork i very highly recommended Our non-anniversary this week, keeping it on a Nordic theme, 58 years ago, the invention of the troll doll. The troll doll, these are the strange little plastic uh, creatures with giant tufts of neon hair. Which I certainly thought came about in the early 1990s, because that's when everybody had them on their desk at school. This was the second craze of the the troll doll, the second coming. They were actually, the first fad was the early 1960s. They were invented by a Danish baker called Thomas Dam, who made one for his daughter, 
her friends liked it. So he made little moulds, he pulled rubber in, started making some more. And in a classic story of American evilness, they got the copyright. They made all the troll dolls. He got very disillusioned and the family fought for years and years. They got the copyright eventually back in about 2003, which by which time the troll dolls were not no fashionable anymore. <laughs> Did so, you have one? I've never had one. I mean, they mainly cropped up on the end of pencils, uh, but they were mainly in girls' pencil cases, I would say. I don't know why girls would be pr- particularly attracted to They tried to, the to make some boys' ones because they tried to do a Ninja Turtles spin-off troll doll. Also, there are some very rare ones. There was a two-headed one from Denmark. Created on purpose? Or, yeah, or not or just a r- kind of <laughs> abortive attempt at a normal troll doll. There was a black one as well. These are these fetch huge amounts of money on eBay, but they have to be the original Danish model and not the crappy right. American version. Right. No, I can bet the um, the completest troll collector must, must have sleepless nights about... about his or her missing models i guess they did go into the realm of mass production but i suppose when you look closely at them there is still something a little bit genuinely folklorish about them mm. um they're not like a kind of they do have sort of little wrinkly faces mm. and, and i was thinking this week about trolls because there's a toby anson exhibition at dulwich picture gallery which um one of our writers has written about lizzie uh, palmer has written about in this week's magazine, um, she was obviously the creator of the Moomins. Again, they're her own creation, but they stem from this long tradition of trolls. And I don't really actually know whether, is the troll a benign or a mischievous or an evil thing? Or maybe it's a bit like fairies where they can be yeah. they can be sort of on the spectrum. Trolls tended to guard bridges, didn't they? And ask for passwords and things like that. So yeah, they are exactly good or evil, depending on who's coming to them, who's talking to them. There was Troll Hunter, wasn't there? It was quite good, that horror film a few years ago. They tried to, the Dam family actually did sell the rights in the end to the Troll Dolls to DreamWorks to create a movie. Of course that... they've made this movie, which is so huge. So has it been made? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you've got a four-year-old like me, you will know about the DreamWorks song Trolls if not because they've actually seen the film, but they've all come across the soundtrack, which has things like Justin Timberlake doing Can't Stop the Feeling. Oh, that horrible dance, 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 dance. Dance, dance, dance. Yeah, yeah, I hate that song. So basically, (laughs) they actually did have a third coming. Yes, yeah, they did. So they've proved remarkably persistent. So happy non-aversary to the trolls. Thank you for downloading the Back Half podcast. We were recorded by India Burke and edited by Caroline Crampton. I've been Tom Gatti and this on my right is Kate Mossman. And this week we will not be leaving you with the exciting tones of Pistol Jazz and their song Godspeed. We'll be leaving you with the lovely, lovely tones of Bjork and her song Blissing Me. You